are listening to Beyond the Whistle. Beyond the Whistle is the show that takes you beyond the X's and O's to provide tips and advice on the business of sports and how sports professionals can advance in their careers. Beyond the Whistle is brought to you by McCant Sports, a sports executive search and sports leadership consulting firm. Learn more at McCantSports.com. Welcome to Beyond the Whistle. I'm your host, Odell McCants, and thank you for listening. This episode, episode 14, is my conversation with Brittany Wagner, the former academic counselor at East Mississippi Community College and the star of the Netflix series, Last Chance You. I wanted this conversation to go beyond Brittany's experience on the show uh, to capture her f- over 15 years of working as an academic advisor to athletes. What isn't captured on the show is her experience at Mississippi State prior to coming to East Mississippi. And uh, the while the show focuses on East Mississippi's football program, uh, during Brittany's tenure there at East Mississippi, they had a very successful basketball program, not winning the national championships like football, but Brittany did help over 50 basketball players uh, graduate and transfer to four-year programs. A little bit of a spoiler alert here. Uh, season two ends with Brittany's teary departure from East Mississippi. So we get caught up on what she's working on now. We go back to the beginning of her career journey, how her journey at times paralleled that of many of her players, the advantages she has as a woman working with male athletes, what past experiences of black male athletes have with men in their lives and how it impacts how they view men in positions of authority. And she spoke quite candidly of this. And I think it's a conversation that we need to have more of in sports and society. We talk about uh, how coaches and administrators can strengthen their relationships with school faculty and their academic counselors. The questions asked by recruiters evaluating JUCO players and also the advantages of recruiting JUCO players to four-year institutions. So here's my conversation with Brittany Wagner from Netflix, Last Chance You. Welcome to Beyond the Whistle. I'm your host, Odell McCants, and thank you for listening. I have a confession to make. I recently became perhaps the last person to subscribe to Netflix. I was a subscriber of Netflix way back in the day when they sent you the movie DVDs in the mail, and that was a long time ago. When I finally did subscribe to Netflix, the very first show I searched for and watched was one that I'd heard so much about, Last Chance You. Last Chance You is a Netflix docuseries following the East Mississippi Community College football program. And East Mississippi is one of the most successful JUCO football programs in the country with four national championships in the last seven years. The program has been built around a landing place for transfer players dismissed from Power 5 programs, whether it be because of academics or disciplinary reasons. And while the show features the players, head coach Buddy Stevens, and the coaching staff, a major focal point of the show is the work of our guest today, Brittany Wagner, who during the show's two seasons served as athletic academic advisor at East Mississippi. Brittany, welcome to Beyond the Whistle. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. And yes, Miss Wagner, I have my pencil. <laughs> so do I. I have one right here. <laughs> yes. And I say that because, Brittany, it, it became one of the memorable lines of the show. You asking uh, players heading to class or an exam, where's your pencil? Uh, and it was, it's also reflective in the name of your latest venture, 10,000 Pencils. So can you get us caught up on what you've been up to since, uh, since the last season of Last Chance You? 
Yeah, well, you saw him on the last episode, my teary goodbye, um, walking away from the school and just making that decision to leave and kind of take a different path. And so I've recently moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and I've started my own company, which is 10,000 Pencils, where I now do consulting work all over the country. So I will go into, I've worked with school districts, so elementary, middle, and high school um, school districts. I've worked with teams, individual teams. I've worked with colleges, university conferences. Um, so I've kind of got a, a mix of clients, but I go in and I basically um, can do one of two things, work with the adults in the room. So the teachers, the counselors, the administrators on on how to maybe create an academic success plan for either their athletes or for just their students in general. And then also on how to maybe better work with those at-risk athletes, those the athletes like you saw in Last Chance You that maybe just need something different, um, something more than what is already being provided by the school. I also do a lot of motivational speaking. Um, so I'll, again, go to these varying places and varying audiences and and speak about my experiences and, and just try to motivate either these young athletes or the teachers or corporations, um, you know, on how to see people as whole people and not just not just this narrow-minded view of the task that they want them to perform, but seeing them as whole individuals. And so that is 10,000 Pencils. Um, I have also just recently uh, founded a foundation. So with this foundation, we are going to start scholarshipping individual athletes into being able to work with me one-on-one or work with 10,000 Pencils one-on-one. So that again, we can better reach athletes that are that are underprivileged and maybe can't afford some of these services on their own, just to get them college ready and life ready. Because I immediately wanted to have you on the podcast, because to me, the show captured the work and the impact that you and so many non coaches uh, in high school and college have on athletes. And when I say non coaches, because they don't always carry the title of academic advisor, or a counselor, or, or even a teacher. But what I have experienced is that there is one person in every building or in every campus that truly knows who athletes are as people, mm-hmm. and, and it's usually a woman. Uh, and how, how did this all start for you, and what was your career path to a career in athletics and academic advisory? You know, I don't have this spectacular story, and I think that shocks people. You know, people want this this spectacular story um, on how I got where I am. And I really don't have it. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I, I even in college, I went to college and, and didn't, ha- I had no clue. I was an undecided major until they absolutely made me decide. And even when they made me decide, I really felt like I didn't have a passion for, for anything. Nothing sounded good to me. And I loved sports. I was not an athlete, but I always loved sports. I was always interested in the stories behind the games, the, the players' stories or the coaches' stories. Um, and so I honestly flipped through the catalog at Mississippi State University, and I and I honestly found I, – I started – instead of looking at the names of majors, I started looking at the classes I would have to take and seeing, like, what appealed to me. And then I also um, hated math. And so another thing that was important to me was finding the major with the least amount of math. And I chose sport communication because the classes appealed to me and there was only statistics involved in it. So I thought, okay, well, this will work. Um, I wanted to be a sports journalism journalist. And that was at a time when women weren't really welcome in that field. So I was 
majoring in that, kind of knowing that I very possibly could not get a job when I graduated. Um, and then I went to grad school, and and I was going to major in I was majoring in sport administration for for my graduate degree, and I needed my degree paid for. I didn't want to have student debt. Um, my parents weren't going to pay for my master's. And so I went to the athletic director. I had been a student worker in the athletic department my whole undergrad. And I said, look, I need a graduate assistantship. If you've got one, I'll do anything if I can just get my school paid for. And he said, well, we have one left. It's in the athletic academic office. I had no idea what that was. I, I had no clue what they did, who, who what I was going to be doing. I just said, okay, I'll take it. And it was there, it was in, in the athletic academic office at Mississippi State following, I was working very closely with another very successful, very strong, powerful woman. Miss um, Ann Carr is her name, and she is still at Mississippi State as the senior associate AD. Um, and, and I was, she was the football counselor at the time, and it was working hand in hand with her and watching her motivate and develop relationships with these players and hearing the players' stories and where they've come from and that I really knew, okay, that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Great. So it sounds like you had that, that drive and determination though, uh, kind of those soft skills, I, I guess we like to talk about in academia now. Yeah, I did. And you know, I, I do have memories at a very young age of being concerned with other people, in, you know, in my class. I mean, I have memories as early as the fourth grade of, of a guy that sat behind me named Henry Whitehead and Henry was always in trouble and he never had his homework and he never had a pencil. And, and I remember very vividly being very concerned and more concerned than he was. Um, I was constantly kind of bribing him and, and, you know, if you'll do your, if you'll bring your homework tomorrow, I'll, I'll bring you candy and just really, really concerned about him doing well in class. And, and so I do think I kind of had this innate something God-given, you know, something that I was just born with, this innate ability to connect and maybe care about people that society would say, I don't really have any business connecting or caring about. Um, I, I think I've always just been aware of that. And that is something that has just always kind of been inside of me. Yeah. You know, Brittany, uh, kind of along those lines, you know, when you, to me, when you look at JUCO sports, it's, it's less of a last chance, although I know for some it is their last chance, but more of a second chance. Uh, right. and, and, and having said that, you know, as athletes, no one wants to, to be there. Out, out of high school, you either didn't qualify academically or you were lightly recruited or not re- even recruited at all. And for transfers, many have played on the college game's biggest stages with all the privileges that go with that. Uh, but now you find yourself in Scuba, Mississippi. <laughs> and how do you as an academic counselor go about building a relationship with someone who doesn't even want to be there? You know, I think that was, I think that was key. And, and, you know, I think there, I think interestingly enough, if I'm being honest, there were a lot of days where I didn't want to be there. You know, I felt like, mm-hmm. I felt like we were kind of in the same boat like here I had come from an SEC, I, I, I had ended up working at my alma mater. So I was in the SEC. I was a counselor in the, at Mississippi State University for four years, working with football and men's basketball and feeling like, you know, okay, like I, I'm in the SEC and I'm young and I'm just going to work my way up. And then, you know, I've made it. And then all of a sudden I get this call and I find myself in Scuba, Mississippi, starting from nothing um, and building a program from the ground up with players that, like you just said, 
it's a, it's a totally different mentality from the guys I was working with in the SEC. And I, and I think in some ways we were very similar. Um, you know, I, I was there to build a program and, and to, and I, and at first, I think at, at East Mississippi, I was waiting on the phone call, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I was waiting to get mm-hmm. recruited mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just kept never happening. And, and, and so I, I felt myself really connecting to the athletes in, in that way of they were, they were waiting for the same thing that I was waiting for. I think the key though, to really building the relationships with those guys is, is I was human too, but meeting them where they were. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times in the academic world, we have this expectation of everyone coming into the classroom or coming into the team meeting room, acting the way that we want them to act and, and having the skills that we expect them to have. And then when your expectations aren't met, that you get frustrated and you get disappointed and you get, you know, you, you start to get angry. And, and, and so I, I just eliminated the expectation. I, I felt like, okay, if, I, if they walk in the door, here they are. Now, whatever they're bringing in the room, it's here. So me being bitter about it or being upset that they're here, with we recruited them or we admitted them or whatever, that's not solving the problem. And, it, and it, it, it's much easier for me to just accept them as they are and then grow them from there rather than having this expectation that they should be somewhere, that they should start, you know, somewhere else. Um, and I think that was really the key to to building the trust and the relationships with the guys is I just accepted them for who they were and where they were. Yeah, that's a big part of the psychology, I think, of, of working with, with athletes. And it, that's a part that does not get, get, get mentioned. No, correct. And I think there's a lot of, you know, I think <laughs> this is probably going to sound terrible, but I just, I think there's a lot of people working in education and in athletics who really don't want to earn their paycheck. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just want to take the easy way out and they want to coach a winning team, but they don't want to do the real work to win, to get to that point. Um, they just want it kind of handed to them. And, and I think to be a successful coach and to be a, a successful administrator or a successful teacher, you really have to put in the work behind the scenes. Um, you, you know, I, I'm not going to motivate players to do something that they really don't want to do if I'm just nagging and throw, you know, constantly just throwing a to-do list in their face. Um, They don't see the benefit of it, you know, and it's like a coach expecting a basketball player to go shoot a hundred free throws a day. Well, what's the benefit? Like, why am I doing that? And I think there's a lot of, a lot of coaches and administrators and even counselors and teachers out there who just want people to, they, they just want people to complete the items on the to-do list, but they're not really teaching them why or how to create their own to-do list. And I think that's when you build winning programs and you really make a difference in people's lives is when you, when you teach them why they're doing what they're doing and then how to do it on their own. And do you agree that that's even more important in this generation? You know, I, I grew up in a time when you, you, you did what you were told to do by coach or by teacher, by mom or dad. But now I think with so much information at their fingertips, uh, this generation, millennials or whatever comes behind millennials, aren't so quick to just do whatever you tell them to. And they, they, they need to understand that. Why? Because they can look up some of this information as right. well. 
Right. You know, it's so interesting to me nowadays with, with Google and just social media, you know, you, <laughs> you can sit when, when, when I was in school, a teacher could sit in a classroom and talk about a concept. And if you didn't, you know, if, if they ask a question and no one knew the answer, you weren't getting it. You weren't getting the answer without going to the library and looking up the card catalog and finding somewhere to read it. And nowadays you walk in a classroom and the teacher can put the topic of the lesson on the on the board and then within 10 minutes students are can google and read all they need to read about that topic before the teachers ever even open their mouth. There's just unlimited resources. And I think that's good. I think I think that if we would embrace that and teach and embrace the fact that students have these resources at their fingertips and to be resourceful and to answer your own questions and to do your own research is certainly a positive thing. But like you said, there's also there's also I I think these students are losing their social skills. You know, like when we were young, you looked an adult in the eye and you, yes, ma'am, and you did what they said to do. And sometimes you didn't really know why you were doing it, but you did it because you were told to do it. And now there's so much information out there that that I feel like, you know, if they don't understand, if if they don't agree with you, then they're not doing it. Or if they've read something differently, then, you know, they don't care what you said. Um, But I think that I think that comes down to social skills and, and respect and um, and I think that's where social media and the internet and, and, and available resources are maybe hurting these millennials in that they're losing the ability to look people in the eye. They're losing the ability to communicate face to face and have conversation and, and explain themselves. Every, you know, everything is just a fact with a period at the end of it rather than being able to conversate and explain both sides of the story. And I think almost every guy showing in your office had earbuds in their ear or or around their neck or something. You're right. You're right. They did. And, you know, I got a lot of emails about that. And that was something that I just learned to deal with. Yeah. I think early on in my career, I probably, you know, hounded that a lot. Take your headphones off, you know, turn your music off. And I've nagged probably on that. And I realized it just wasn't effective because here's the thing. If I was constantly telling them, to pull their pants up and, and turn their music off. And I was, every time they walked in my office, I was nagging. I mean, what's going to happen. They're just going to quit coming in my office. So I had to change my approach and I had to learn how to deal with things that maybe made me uncomfortable um, so that I could continue to get them to come in my office. And what I found out though, was a lot of times, yes, the earbuds were in their ears, but there was nothing being played Mm. through them. You know, they were just in there and, Um, and, and so, you know, you're nagging on something that doesn't even, isn't really even existing. Um, you know, I also, I, I learned, I learned too, that even in those moments where maybe they were pretending not to listen and maybe there was some music going on or they were looking down on their phones and they were pretending not to listen, they were listening and the thing, you know, it would come back later in in that moment. I would think they're not hearing a word I say. And then 24 hours later, two days later, you know, Ollie would come back in my office and reference that very thing that I thought he had not heard. And so, I, you know, I had to learn that, that I just have to, I have to go with, go with what I know to do and trust that it's sinking in at some level. It sounds a lot like parenting. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I go through the same thing with my daughter on a daily basis. Yes. 
Brittany, what advantages do you think you have being a woman working with male athletes that perhaps male coaches may, may not have? I think that's a huge advantage. Um, again, early on in my career, I was told by a coach in a meeting full of men that they should have hired a man in my position because I was too emotional. And I took that as an insult. I took it personally and I would find myself walking in these meetings and trying to act like a man um, because I had been told that and I believed it, that I was too emotional and that I, and then I realized that I was so much more effective <laughs> as a female and as just owning the fact that I was a female and I am emotional and I do take it personally because it matters to me. I'm passionate about it and it matters to me and there's nothing wrong with that. That I was so much more effective in that space than trying to be, trying to be, you know, one of the guys in the room. I think with college athletes, especially African-American males, they have had most of them have had not very positive experiences with men in their life. Mm -hmm. They either don't have a father figure around and, and that, that man has disappointed them. You know, men in their life have seemed to disappointed them. And I think the women in their life, whether it's a mom, an aunt, a sister are the ones that have kind of kept, kept them grounded mm -hmm. and kept them focused. And so I think automatically, whether it's right, wrong, and different automatically, they take to that female, they trust that female more than the man right off the bat. Then I think women just have this innate ability to care. You know, I think, I think, especially when you're dealing with coaches, when a coach has an agenda, coach, you know, when coach has an agenda to win and, and that's their focus, I think they lose the focus of caring about the whole athlete. And when that female, whoever she may be, is they're caring about that those athletes as people and not they're supporting the athletic ability, but it's not the basis of their love or their care. That plays out in, in such an amazing way when developing trust and relationships. And I just I think in a in a lot of ways women are, are initially better at that than men. Yeah, I when I first got in the agent business, uh, uh, an NBA executive who's become a great mentor of mine really taught me about that in the psychology of dealing as part of the psychology of dealing with athletes and that so many of them have been raised, as you said, by mom, grandma, a sister and aunt uh, had a teacher or a counselor that really impacted their lives. And looking at it from a male perspective, have had the negative experiences with men and particularly an African-American young man looking at an African-American man, you represent the father who walked out on us, uh, the boyfriend who may be abusive to my mom, uh, even perhaps the, 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 the rival gang or member or something on, on, on the corner or, or a rival, you know, a personal rival. And that's really deep. And I think it's something that we don't, that's not talked about, but when we talk about dealing with athletes, it's a big, big part of that psychology. I agree. You know, I, I do. And I, I think too, white men for some African-American men have, have been the people that have put them down or get not given them opportunity or, um, you know, and I think that's a problem too. I don't think it's just, I think, I think it's, and I think sometimes women are that way. You know, women sometimes are very competitive with other women 
and, and, you know, we, we are very territorial and we want to be, you know, the best dressed in the room or the prettiest in the room or the smartest in the room. And so when another woman walks in and takes that spot, you know, we get very defensive and competitive. And I don't think, you know, I think we all have that nature in us. Um, but I have definitely seen that in my 15 or so years in college athletics. I have definitely picked up on and seen um, that to be true, that a lot of African-American um, young men, especially athletes, and I don't know why the athlete component of it is so um, – it seems like just within within the athlete group, it's so much more relevant than maybe with just regular student body, but – I'm not sure why that is, but I've definitely picked up on that and seen that. And I honestly, I've thought about, you know, who's going to be that first college program to hire a woman on their staff? Because I really feel like if you had a, if you had a female, you know, on that coaching staff, I wonder what dynamic that would change for these guys as well. Yeah, we I, we may see it soon uh, with 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 the NBA and and the uh, and the hiring. Uh, I can't believe her name escapes me now <laughs> on, yeah, on the San Antonio I, yeah. staff. Uh, we may see it because I tell you, you know, if if you can, if a woman can be wife and mother and sister and teacher and counselor, I don't see why that she can't be coached. I agree, and you know, even even as I said it years ago. Um, even to have a, a female on a staff that is, you know, I, I don't even, the title doesn't matter to me, but director of character development or player development. And, and you're talking about internal player development, not athletic development, mm-hmm. which, you know, those positions are, are on staffs, but it's all about the athletic development. None of it is about mental and emotional and psychological development, but I think to have a female on every staff and that's their job is to handle the off the field issues that these kids are going through. Um, I think that, you know, somebody needs to wake up and decide that that's important and necessary. And because look, the bottom line is when players are stressed out about money or girlfriends or mom or academics or, or whatever is they're facing in their life and they're stressed out about those things off the court or off the field, they're not playing at their best. And in order to maximize their potential athletically, I think you have to really start paying attention to what's happening to them and what's going on in their lives off the field because otherwise they're distracted and they're stressed and they're frustrated and they're not 100% focused on the the game or the the playbook or or, or the you know their workout their mind is elsewhere mm-hmm. and you have to teach them i think it's our responsibility as the adults that we have to teach them how to deal with stress we have to have teach them how to deal with these off the field issues because they're not going away mm-hmm. you know i mean i'm 40 years old i'm successful and and i have off the you know i have off the field issues yeah, we all know? we all do yes There's stressors <laughs> in my life and I have to learn how to deal with them. And I think that's why you see so much um, d- drug test failing. You know, every every day I feel like there's somebody's failed a drug test or somebody's acted out and done, gotten arrested or, or done, put something on social media. And I think that's why is these kids don't know how to deal with the stresses in their life. And so they go smoke pot or they mm-hmm. go drink themselves to death or they you know, act out and go fight or they, they don't know how to deal with all these things and we're not helping them. We're just expecting them to, to, well, just deal with it. Well, when you don't have the skills to do that, you're turning to something else. 
Well, I, I think the time has come when you look at uh, the issues of domestic violence and sexual assault and you know, drug and alcohol abuse uh, for coaches to keep their jobs and to get a job uh, and to recruit. You're going to have to now do more than just give the lip service of, oh, we're going to mold your your, your, your son to be a young, to be a man. Um, it's I think the time has come that coaches are going to, have to go beyond that and really put in to action uh, those types of positions and and programs within their program uh, that that you've just described. I hope so. You know, I hope I think that's something that a college presidents and the NCAA and the, the people at the top are really going to have to get behind and start demanding. Um, and I and I hope that we've reached that point. And I would love to see females um, really being involved in those positions. At every level. So, Brittany, when you're serving as academic advisor, you're you're bridging between two groups within institution. You know, there's the athletic department and the school faculty, and sometimes faculty have misconceptions of the athletes on their campus. What what did you find uh, were successful ways to bridge that gap and also combat some of those misconceptions or stereotypes? I think that's key, and I think that's the part that a lot of coaches and academic counselors forget about, you know, is being kind of the liaison between the two departments. And I think that, I think one of the things you have to do as an academic counselor is you have to stay in the middle. You can't always side with athletics. You can't always side with academics. You really have to be in the middle and remember that you're you're the liaison, you know, you're the one that knows that there's two sides to every story. And you're the one that's picking the story that merges both sides. And, and I think we forget that sometimes and we start siding and and that's where you start pitting the two against each other. And I really think it's our job to kind of merge the two. I think every school at every level has faculty that don't buy in. They don't buy into the athletic department or, or, you know, they're bitter about the money that's being spent towards athletics or, again, thinking that athletes don't perform at the high, you know, the highest level, um, at the highest, the level that other students perform at. And, and, and they're everywhere. And, and to think that they're unique to one institution or an institution doesn't have faculty like that is naive because it exists everywhere. For me, the key to me for my success at, at SCUBA honestly started with bridging that gap and really immersing myself with the faculty. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't I didn't go in and, and just go gung-ho with athletics from day one. Um, I was asked for my office to be in the football facility, and I said no. My office was on the hallway with all of the teachers. <laughs> I was in the I was in the main academic building and I was smack dab in the middle of the hallway with teachers on both sides of me. And I think that is important that that I, for two reasons. For one, that they can see what I'm doing. You know, they can see that I have athletes in my office, in and out of my office every day. I'm tutoring them. I'm holding them accountable. I'm I'm mentoring them. They can see that, that it's not just they're not just reporting information to me so that I can check it off the list, you know, that I'm doing something with the information that they're giving me. And then I think it was important because I could see what they had to do on a daily basis too and what they went through and say, you know what, we're not going to ask our faculty to, to do this, to do, to, to go, to do this specific thing for athletics because they're already doing X, Y, and Z. 
it was important for, I think, both sides to see what each job looked like and what the responsibilities of that job really looked like. And I really formed great relationships with our faculty. I, I think another thing that is extremely important in bridging that gap Faculty are humans too. <laughs> and, you know, they're teachers. So there's a heart in there and a passion in there for educating and, and seeing young people thrive. So that's in there. And now, so for some faculty, it may have died along the way, or, you know, you've gotten frustrated and you lost a little bit of that. But it's, I think it's in there. You wouldn't have gone into that field to begin with. And for me, with our faculty, the key really was for the faculty to get to know our athletes and not just by, you know, quarterback touchdowns. You know, this guy has 82 football offers, not, not that kind of get to know, but get to know like the real, where they came from and what they've been through and, and where they're going, you know, and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. And when, and because I think when faculty start to know the students in their class and the stories behind them, they're way more likely to be understanding and to, and to help them and to want to help them and to be supportive of their academic journey than if it's just a lot of numbers on a page. You know, if it's just an ID number on a page and you and you and you never know the people that are sitting in your classroom, you know, yeah, it's it's easy to not really care about their futures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was constantly tr- really working on, and, and I, I, t- I took it as, it's, you know, hey, it, athletes, it's your responsibility. Mm-hmm. So you go into your teacher's office today and talk to her. Introduce yourself. Tell her who you are and where you're from and, you know, apologize for being late to class today. Like mm-hmm. walk in her office and look her in the eye and say, I'm sorry I was late today. Here's why I was late. Because I think that matters. And there are a lot of students, especially athletes, who are terrified to speak to teachers. I don't know what it is, but they're terrified of it. And and I think we worked really hard on overcoming that fear with our athletes. And, and I would make them, I would walk them to the door and then be like, okay, go in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. tell them you're sorry. And I think that was really important. And once our teachers really started getting to know our athletes and getting to know their stories, they would volunteer. You know, they would come to me and say, hey, look, I would love to tutor um, these guys, you know, after class if, if you need that. Or, or hey, you know, I really, I really want to, I'm going to travel to the away game Thursday night because I've just, I just love Ronald Ollie to death. You know, he's such mm-hmm. a bright light in my class. I want to see him play. And our teachers really bought in. And I think that is was one of the key components to us having the success academically that we had is that we just had the teacher buy-in. And it took a while. It wasn't there when I got there. Um, it took me a while to build that up. Um, but I did it through, you know, being right there on the front lines with the faculty, getting to know them individually, seeing what they were going through, taking their sides. I mean, there were meetings that I went in where I didn't, I was adamantly against something athletics was pushing because it did not align with what the faculty needed. And I would fight their battles for them at times. And I think that's important to do in order to gain their trust. So along those lines, one of the criticisms that I have of the show is, and I know you can't fit everything into a, into a production, but for me, 
there was not enough shown of your interactions with the coaching staff. <laughs> um, and and I, I think in season two, there was, there was some of you and D- Davern Williams, is that how you pronounce? Um, Davern. D- Davern. Yes. Yeah. Who I, I think is, is great. Uh, I want the listeners to know he's a defensive line. He was a defensive line coach and he's now at Tennessee Chattanooga. And I, I think he genuinely cares. At least this is what came over, came through on the show. Um, knows how to be demanding without being demeaning. Right. Uh, and and one one of my favorite scenes of the whole series is when he's disciplining Cam for his demeaning action towards the female team managers. And I think we need more of that from our from our, from our coaches. I agree. Um, yeah. yeah, and you know, I always ask the question. You know, what I want that coach teaching, mentoring my son. Um, and he's a definite yes in my book, at least from what I saw on the show. And yeah, I'm looking yeah, forward great. to watching his career. Yeah. So back to I guess what I what I want to ask is. I, do you believe helps uh, create a positive or work positive working environment between a relation between you and, and the, and the coaching staff? Yeah, I think that's, that's key and it's tough. I've worked for a lot of coaches and some have been great, some not so great. Um, you know, and I think that's a, that's a struggle because you're, you have, you, you kind of have two different goals Um, you know, I always, I always, I feel like I'm very aware that coaches get paid to win nine times out of 10, you know, a coach isn't going to get fired for not graduating players, but they're, they're going to get fired for not winning games. And I am not going to get fired because we don't win. I'm going to get fired because I don't graduate players. So I think we have to be aware. Each side has to be aware of where we're coming from, you know, and, and that look, our paychecks are important to us. You know, we all have, Coach Stevens had family uh, mouths to feed. I have mouths to feed. I mean, it's important to us to be successful in our job. And our goals are kind of different. I think where where we fail each other is accepting that and then saying, okay, so how can we align the two? Like, h- how can we, because ultimately, I think graduating players was important to Coach Stevens too. I just think mm-hmm. he he wasn't the best <laughs> at communicating that or, or or putting his actions you know behind that, um, and that's because he was motivated by winning, and you know that's that's what that was about. But I think what's important is that there's a there's something established right from the beginning. I I think you know that a, that a head coach and the academic counselor that that academic counselor should almost be treated like a member of that staff. And and she or he should be included in what is going on with that program and that and that staff. I think there should be be very consistent communication between the two. Um, for me, there was not very much communication between me and Coach Stevens. I did communicate regularly with the assistant coaches. But I think it's very important for that person to feel included. And I, I think for coaches, they don't understand the small things that they could do to really help a counselor feel like they matter. Because that's a thankless job. You know, you're sitting in an office and you're trying to motivate kids to do something that is the last thing on the list that they want to do. And that's academics. And you're just beating your head against a wall on a daily basis. And there's honestly, on a day-to-day basis, there's not a whole lot of reward for that. 
it, it, you see the reward three, four, five years down the road if you mm-hmm. hang in there long enough. Mm-hmm. But you don't get rewarded on a daily basis. You're you're in the middle. No one's rewarding you. And and coaches don't understand. You know, our coaches. We had an Adidas contract. And we had a Division One Adidas contract at a junior college. There was so much swag given to that team and that coaching staff. It was and I noticed that insane. too, Brittany. <laughs> I noticed that too. I mean, I've been in the SEC, and I don't think SEC schools have as much swag as we had. But we they got stuff constantly. Do you know how – I don't even have a T-shirt. Mm. And see, I think that's the kind of stuff that is so minor. You know, mm-hmm. and people would say, well, good grief, it's a T-shirt. Well – Maybe so. (laughs) But to have a coach walk over to your office and say, hey, here's some stuff. We appreciate what you're doing. Mm -hmm. That right there is it's not it just means the world to those counselors who never get thanked. Never. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, I think it's the little things like that that coaches can do rather than calling an academic counselor and saying, I need Mm-hmm. You know, that's the coaches love that. You know, they pick up the phone and you you say hello and they I need you to drop so and so from this class. Rather than approaching a conversation like that, approach it with what do you think about? Mm-hmm. Because yes, it's your program coach, but this is the expert that has been hired in this area. And I don't know if a, you know, I don't think an offensive coordinator would be going in and telling the defensive coordinator what he needs to do. You know, you need Mm -hmm. to not run that defense. I wouldn't call up a coach and say, hey, I need you to start this quarterback instead of this one. It's not my area of expertise. And coaches can't stand it. They they don't want athletic directors or general managers or team owners telling them what to do. No, but they will be so quick to tell someone else what to do (laughs) in an area that is not their expertise. And I think rather than, you know, calling an I need this, approach it from a different manner. You know, what do you think about this? Or can you explain to me why so-and-so is in this class? And let the expertise at least feel like they have a say. I think that's very important. And the NCAA has made it clear that coaches can no longer say, well, I didn't know of this or that. And I've heard some prominent basketball coaches say, well, I'm not the person to ask what uh, or give advice on what courses you need to take to be a biology major. And no, no, you may not understand what it takes to be a biology major, but you need to have an understanding of where your where your co- where, where your players are academically, where their upcoming demands. To me, that helps you manage your program and manage practices and and everything else that goes along in, in your in your program. Yeah, I agree. I think coaches need to be aware. I I do think that you know they can't be all knowing about everything. And I think that's a little bit of the NCAA's fault. You know, I think there are people that are hired to be in those positions as academic counselors. And I think coaches need to rely on them and, and and need to be included in the conversations. But I don't, I don't know that it's fair to expect the coach and to know, to be the expert in that area and to know, you know, everything that's required. I think that that's the reason that there are people in those positions and so I kind of disagree with that a little bit. I think that that adds to the strife is it's like, okay, well, now coaches feel like they have to control that 
So they're, they're excluding the expert and the academic counselor because they, you know, they want to control it. Um, and and I, I don't think that's the right way to go. I think that needs, it needs to be an inclusive relationship and you need to have that person in the room and you need to be knowledgeable of what they're doing, but they're the expert. And I think, you know, they need to be able to do their job and, and, and yet, and be held accountable for it. But, but they need to be able to make the decisions and do their job and have the coach's support rather than the coach feeling the pressure to control it. Mm-hmm. I think when coaches start trying to control the academics, you get academic fraud, you get you get a lot of things you don't you don't want to have in a program. And that's why the flip side of that is uh is coaches some coaches have said that they've been told to have nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know. Right, and I almost feel it, like that's you know, I think there's a balance. I yeah, think there's a balance, yeah. but but I think when coaches get too involved, there's some shady stuff that starts happening. Yeah. You know, speaking of coaches, something I really liked on the show were the scenes of college coaches visiting with you in your office. <laughs> and and w- when, when four-year programs were recruiting your players, what made for good working relationships with those coaches and in, in, in programs? You know, I was honest. And, and I think and, and I think that's part of the reason that maybe Coach Stevens and I um, our relationship went south is I think there were a lot of those situations where he just did not, he, he wanted me to be quiet. You know, he didn't want me to be honest because the success of our program depended on our players getting recruited. And so I think there were times where we would sell out just to get a player signed. And I was not, I was just was not of that mentality. I feel like, look, when these coaches are coming in, their paychecks are on the line based on who they're recruiting. And I don't want a player to go to a program that's not a good fit. You know, I don't, because then that's not going to be good for anybody. And the player's not going to be successful in that environment if everybody in the room is lying. So I just always approach the situation with honesty. And I, you know, I may not divulge information that wasn't asked. But if a coach asked me a question, I was going to answer it. And, and I was going to answer it honestly. And if that meant that that player didn't get recruited by that program, then that's just what that meant. But I was not. And I think, I think that from, all, from the, all of the coaches that came in, that was the number one thing I always heard from coaches is they loved my honesty um, because they wanted to know what they were getting. And I, I just – I was. I was just – if they would ask me, you know, is this a strong, a high character kid, and he and I he wasn't, then I would say, no, I wouldn't classify him as that. Um, you know, I was asked, I would be, and I was asked tough questions. I was asked one time by a coach, if your paycheck was on the, if your paycheck depended on this player, would you sign him? No, you know, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and. and you know, and, we, and when you're asked those types of questions, very specific questions. I just felt it was my responsibility to answer them truthfully. And then it's not my decision. You know, it's not. Right. If you recruit him anyway, okay. Right. But I've been honest with you. At least you know what you're getting. Right. Boy, I, I wish athletes knew <laughs> the questions and the probing oh, yeah. that that coaches and on the professional side of general managers and scouts ask. I really wish they knew. I've had I've had clients tell me, you mean they really follow that they follow that that kind of stuff? And oh, um yeah. and, and that and that's about as bottom line question as you can as you can get. Mm-hmm. And I, I would get asked 
And I would tell the athletes now, I would tell them when I would be sitting down and talking with them, I would say, now, these are the things that coaches are going to ask me. And I need you to understand that I'm going to be honest. So if you show me, <laughs> you know, some things in your daily behavior, I'm, I mean, I have no choice but to answer the question truthfully. So our players knew. They were very aware of the recruiting process and what coaches were looking for and what they would ask. And they were very aware that I was going to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there were some coaches that were probably not led to my office for that reason. Um, <laughs> but, but that's okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, yeah, I, was at, I would be asked about, you know, how do they res did they respect you? Um, have you, has he ever disrespected you? Um, I was constantly asked about class attendance. How many absences, very specific questions. How many absences does he have in each class? Um, I mean, constantly, you know, ask about grade and effort. Um, is he, is he off the field like he is on the field? Um, very, you know, is he college ready? Do you think he's capable mm -hmm. of doing college level work? And that's a good question. I think I, I remember uh, one of the coaches asking you that that question because like, and I, I feel like he was getting to, okay, this may be what the transcript looks like, but is he capable of doing the work, which, which sometimes are two different right. things. Right. Well, and two, you know, if you have a, a student at East Mississippi Community College, and I'm not knocking the education that they're getting, but it's a community college. And if you have a student that's struggling to have a 2.5 at a community college and you know, the University of North Carolina is recruiting them, that's going to be a little bit of a jump, you know? So mm -hmm. I think that question is very relevant. Look, yes, he's doing okay at East Mississippi, but is he capable of doing college-level work comparable to the University of North Carolina? And, and you know, I actually had a situation where North Carolina was in recruiting one of our guys, and I had to look that coach in the face and say, Coach, he can't come there. He won't make it academically. And, and you know, but and that's that's a hard conversation to have with the student and the coach. But it's reality. And I think I think as the again quote unquote expert in the room, I'm doing the athlete just as much of a disservice as selling him to a program that he's not going to be successful in. Mm -hmm. As anybody, you know, I, I mean, I feel like I, if I'm sitting here and I know his level of effort that he's going to put in and I know his academic level where he's at, it, it's, it's, it's not fair for me to sell him to something that he's probably gonna, not going to be successful in. It, it's just not doing the, uh, a benefit to the athlete. So some, some four-year programs, as we all know, don't recruit JUCO players at all. And for the ones who do, uh, what did you see from their end that made, that made some programs successful in recruiting, but also re retaining uh, junior college players and some may not uh, do so well? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't really understand why more programs don't recruit junior college athletes. I, I don't, I don't really understand. I mean, I get the argument. I don't really buy it. I don't really understand it. You know, having a player for four years, developing them for four years, eh, maybe. Um, but how about, you know, you're taking a player that they've been at a good junior college program who's already developed, you know, in a major way in both areas, the classroom and the court or the field. So I don't really understand that argument. I think people that aren't recruiting junior college athletes are doing themselves a disservice. 
I think it, it. I think the one thing that it does add to to programs is it's it's automatic depth. You know, I mean, it's you're getting a player that should be ready to go on the field immediately. And I, you know, rather than you take a high school senior, you're you're developing them for two years. So now you've got, you know, if you're not recruiting junior colleges, you've got a bunch of kids that are freshmen that are all sitting the bench. You know, they're all they're all your practice players, and they're not developed enough to play. Maybe one or two of them are, but as a whole, most of them are not. And when you recruit junior college athletes, if you're good recruiters, then you're recruiting kids that are ready to step on the field or the court today. I mean, they're they're there and they're ready, and you're and you're you've got an automatic impact on your team. They also should automatically be leaders because they've already been in that college setting and that college environment academically. You know, they've already got some classes and some under their belt. They've already kind of know the the rhythm of college academics. I think all of that is a positive thing. Um, I don't really, you know, I don't. I, I think people have there's this stigma that junior college athletes like that there's something wrong with them. And I, I don't, I think that's false. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, that that's not true at all. Um, I think, I think by the time they leave a junior college, I mean, even if they had made a mistake and they were at a junior college because of a discipline issue or something, if they're, if they're leaving eligible, then they've overcome that. You know, they've, they've worked hard to overcome that. Um, and I think you're getting someone I think someone that's made a mistake and overcome it is way more powerful of an influence than someone who has no life experiences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think you're getting something special in a junior college athlete. And, I, you know, I'm really perplexed as to why more programs don't recruit them. Yeah. And what, what can junior college programs do to help their their athletes prepare for that next step to a four-year uh, to, to four college? I think there has to be discipline and accountability. You know, I think for most Division One programs, that's that's going to be a given. You know, you're not going to walk in a team meeting at Alabama ten minutes late and and just sit down. It ain't happening. And mm-hmm. and and so I think that you have to teach that responsibility and accountability. And and again, on day one, do you have that expectation? Probably not. But I think you teach it over time. And so you. You know, I used to say, look, if I can just teach you to set your alarm and get up and be at your eight o'clock class on time, then I've done something like, you know, then then that's good because I want you to do that when you get where you're going. You know, I can hand out pencils at East Mississippi because I want you to know when you get to Alabama, you better go to class with a pencil. And, and so I think it's those things that you that you you teach them. And, you know, I read something not too long ago that said, if there's a if there's a result that you're not getting, if there's a an action that you're not getting, you have you have to accept the fact that it has to be taught. Just just assume that the reaction you want is not it, it's not there. So you have to teach it. And I think that's so important because we expect we what we do, I think, is we say, oh, he didn't show up with a pencil. Well, he's lazy. He's stupid. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to be here. And that may not be the case, you know. And if you if you want if you want that action to take place, then just assume you have to teach it. Just assume it's not known mm-hmm. rather than assume something's wrong with that person. And so, you know, I think junior college programs to to hold these kids accountable, to have some discipline, but not to the point that you're just discarding them. 
you know, at the slightest mishap or the slightest mistake, you're just up, you know, get out. Mm-hmm. That, that you're really using it as a, as a teaching opportunity um, to mold these habits. You know, think about, okay, what are the, I, I used to think about this because I'm thinking, hey, these kids have our names all over them. They have East Mississippi Community College all over them when they go to Florida State, Alabama, Texas. I don't want to be embarrassed by that. You know, I don't want them to show up at Texas and not know how to function and everybody be looking and being like, who's his counselor? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is his counselor at East Mississippi? So I would look at, okay, what is it? What are the skills that I think are important for him to have when he transfers to Texas? Well, I want him to go to class. You know, I want him to not cheat. I want him to work, you know, show up, just show up. Mm-hmm. Because I know at Texas, there's resources there to help him, mm-hmm. but he has to show up. So there were certain things that I that were important to me to really teach. And I, I think that's the coach's responsibility. There's going to be things athletically, you know, showing up on time to team meetings, being at workouts, putting forth maximum effort, not being disrespectful to coaches and, and support staff. I mean, I think these are things that you that these coaches should hold accountable, hold the athletes accountable to and really discipline them on if for nothing else so that when they do get to the next place, they're not making you look bad. So, Brittany, this has been really enlightening, and thank you so much uh, for for our listeners to get caught up more on what you're doing now. Uh, what are the best places for them to connect with you? Um, Twitter and Instagram are our hot items. Um, my my handle on Twitter and Instagram is Brittany underscore MS Girl. Um, Brittany B R I T T A N Y underscore MS Girl, and that's Twitter and Instagram. I also have a website, BrittanyWagner.com. And so both of those places are great. Um, yeah. And I'll have links to all of those in the show notes. And also your podcast has yes. been great. Uh, Sharpen <laughs> Up. Yeah, Sharpen Up with Brittany Wagner. And you can get it on any um, outlet where you can download podcasts. Um, please subscribe, rate, review. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for your insights today. Best of luck in your endeavors. And thank you for being on Beyond the Whistle. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. 